0: Usually I get asked to talk about endoscopies, I'm very pleased to talk about something a bit more clinical, which hopefully you'll find more interesting than all my endoscopy pictures that I normally subject people to. But I've I've changed the title slightly, I'm going to talk about acute severe colitis, which is a a big subject to get through in half an hour, Uh, so I'm going to limit my talk to to, to this group of patients, which is probably the most important for this group to to understand. So my first slide is probably the... um, the most important. and If there's one thing you take home today, it's, it's, it's the information on this slide. And it dates back from 1955, um, and it's these two people, this is um, Sydney Love and Leslie Witt, working in Oxford in 1955, and they came up with a seminal paper in the management of acute severe colitis. And they really defined what acute severe colitis is, so this is what you have to try and remember. And it's patients with frequent bloody stools, so it's this column here, greater than six a day with one of these three things, either a temperature, a tachycardia, a low haemoglobin or a raised DSR which we would now say actually reduce CRP instead but similar sort of number, CRP of greater than 30. Coming more up to date the European Crohn's and Colitis organisation, uh, this is the uh, their guidance as to what to do with patients with acute colitis? And you can see, very similar to the previous slides, and not much has changed in over 50 years, patients with bloody diarrhoea greater than six a day with signs of systemic toxicity should be admitted to hospital for intensive treatment. And hopefully, um, you'll understand by the end of this talk why these patients need to be uh, admitted to hospital. And really, what I'm going to talk about for the rest of the time is the assessment and the treatment of these uh, in-patients with acute severe colitis. Looking at the historical perspective, in the 1930s the mortality from these patient, this patient group was up to 75 percent. In the 1950s prior up to True Love and Wits uh, seminal paper in the BMJ on intravenous steroids, mortality was 22 percent, the improvement really being with best supportive care, bed rest, intravenous fluids, simple nursing measures. The first effective treatment for colitis came about in the 19, <coughs> after 1955 and they showed in this first paper that um, the mortality was reduced to 7% with corticosteroids from a placebo of 24%. More recently in the UK uh, IBD audit mortality is much lower and in specialist centres there's evidence that the mortality can be very low indeed. But the last line is really a sign not to be complacent this was published in the British Site of Gastroenterology in 2001 from a district general hospital which I, I won't name uh, and it was good of them to report it because often these things don't get reported but they showed that their mortality in patients with acute severe colitis all comers was 24% so that's the same as the placebo arm um, in the studies of 1955 so I think this is just that we mustn't be complacent with the treatment of acute severe colitis. It can still be a dangerous disease. Since 1955, there have been many other uh, disease activity indexes which have been suggested. I'm not going to go through them all um, because none of them have really replaced uh, the initial. Um, They tend to get used in different clinical studies. And you can be a bit of a cynic and say, well, probably the reason being is that people can't compare their studies or their drug with other people's but it maintains that the clinical assessment largely from clinical features and laboratory findings are probably the best way to diagnose. We also use imaging modalities and endoscopic parameters which help us to uh, define how we can tailor treatments in these group of patients. But the, the, the main things I want to really highlight are these clinical findings. I'm going to talk for the first half now about clinical assessment of colitis and I'll come on to the second half of the talk uh, about treatment. So clinical features, I'm sure you all know this, but it's well worth going through this, 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 uh, this slide. So bloody stools, greater than 90% of patients have uh, bloody stools. It's rare for severe colitis to present with without blood. Usually the history is fairly long. So patients would have had symptoms for over six weeks. Not perhaps severe, but they would have had diarrhoea for six, over six weeks. Shorter than that, and obviously we think about acute infections as a cause for the colitis. Although the main symptom is bloody diarrhoea, these patients do have other symptoms. They often have urgency in tenesmus. they pass uh, mucus, um, they open their bowels at night, and they often have cramps which come on before opening their bowels and are relieved when their bowels are open. Patients with limited colitis or proctitis often don't have diarrhoea, they will just have constipation and bleeding but this group of patients don't usually present with acute severe colitis. So it's usually an insidious onset, if it isn't think about infection, but acute severe presentations can occur in patients not previously diagnosed with inflammatory bowel disease in up to about 15% of cases. But even in these cases they will tend to have had some bowel symptoms in the preceding weeks. So just a quick slide on risk factors for colitis. Everyone knows about the story of smoking people who are actively smoking tend not to get an exacerbation of colitis and often patients who stop smoking will present with a severe flare and often these patients are actually more difficult to treat they have more refractory colitis and more severe disease there is some evidence that prior appendicectomy is protective against colitis we don't tend to use it as a treatment but some scandinavian groups have used it in their cohorts of refractory colitis uh, as a treatment non-steroidal anti-inflammatories there was a lot of debate Probably 20 years ago. So whether this was true, but the evidence seems to come out in favour of the fact that nonsteroidals do cause an exacerbation of colitis and should really be avoided in most patients uh, with ulcerative colitis. The selective COX-2 inhib- inhibitors are probably less have less of an effect, so we tend to use those uh, more than standard nonsteroidals. Family history is important, and a significant number of patients with colitis will have a family history. Although the increased risk is high, you can tell patients' relatives that their lifetime risk is only, however, about 2%. So although the incidence is greater than in the general public, it's still unlikely that they will get colitis. Important in the history is that we know about drugs and history of infection, because obviously this is in the differential diagnosis. I'm not going to talk too much about that, I'll have a slide in it later. but um, Infection can present like acute severe colitis. <coughs> So the lab investigations, I'll quickly go through these because they're fairly straightforward. A low hemoglobin, uh, high platelet count in chronic disease. High, uh, white count's usually not raised, and certainly the white counts, more than about 17,000 think about infection. Renal function is important, potassium is particularly important, albumin's important. I'll just say here: if, if the transaminase is, persist, is is significantly raised, it's a, often a flag. Think about CMV. because CMV often presents with systemic disease and with a marked transaminitis. CRP is, by far and large, the most common test, inflammatory test we use. Fecal calprotectins are useful, but are not quantitative. So if it's positive, it's positive, but it doesn't enable you to to monitor treatment uh, quite so well. And it, there are, is some near patient testing, but most. Um, labs will turn around the CalProtect, and certainly here, uh, after a few days, and it's really not useful in the initial assessment. But CRP is fantastic. microbiology is important to test. C. C diff testing is important. Up to 10% of patients will have C. diff as a presentation of acute severe colitis. Uh, And always consider CMV. So imaging, and lastly, by imaging, I mean abdominal X-ray. We rarely do CTs in these patients. But abdominal x-ray is, is very good for diagnosing complications such as perforation, for establishing the extent of disease. Can you see that well enough? i the lights. So um, here we have a colon which is slightly dilated, about 5 centimetres. There's some stool in the right colon, but most of the colon is empty. And if you can see up around here in the distal transverse colon, uh, there's this thumb printing, mucosal edema, uh, very featureless left colon, which often isn't expanded by air, um, and an empty rectum. Small bowel loops, often a bad sign, often a predictor of severe disease. So I'll come on, talk a bit about this later, but abdominal x-ray can also predict the outcome of medical therapy. And one of the reasons we often do it is to exclude toxic megacolon. So most, most patients, admitted as an inpatient, will get an abdominal x-ray at some point. Flexible sigmonoscopy, the, the previous tests haven't really confirmed the diagnosis, but usually flexible sigmonoscopy in a patient with acute severe colitis will confirm the typical appearances of colitis. It's also useful in establishing the severity, and essentially we have four different types, going from normal, uh, graded as one, two or three, or mild, moderate and severe. So we can get a good in- idea from the flexi-sig uh, how severe the patient's colitis is. We will tend to do biopsies to exclude CMV, particularly in patients who are already being immunosuppressed suppressed and are at risk of CMV. Um, we tend not to do full colonoscopy. Uh, it can be done. Uh, we don't certainly don't use bowel prep in patients with acute severe colitis. And the sigmoidoscopies we do, we do unprepped. So no enema, no bowel prep. Uh, the bowel is usually empty so we can get good views. Colonoscopy can be done but the reason it's some groups would say it's contraindicated because of the increased risk of perforation with a fragile colon. And certainly with a severe colitis and with deep ulceration, uh, you wouldn't want to uh, push the colonoscope around hard um, because of the risk of perforation. If you've got mild left-sided disease, though, and it doesn't adequately explain the patient's presentation, sometimes we do want to look at the right colon uh, to be sure there's nothing uh, on the right colon to explain the symptoms. So, just going to do a quick... Um, Go through a quick case in the middle of my presentation, right at the end. Um, this is a 37 year old uh, mother of two, uh, presented um, just recently prior to Christmas here. But in the history, she was diagnosed with very limited colitis in 2011. She had a proctitis, treated with simple suppositories, and her symptoms went away. In 2012, she underwent a colonoscopy to stage the extent of her disease, and the colonoscopy was entirely normal normal macroscopic appearance, normal biopsies. In September of last year, she went to Spain with her family, and four of them uh, came on well with diarrheal illnesses. Um, the other three got better quite quickly. This lady continued to have symptoms, and she had diarrhea and abdominal pain for two weeks prior to presenting to, a, to a, <coughs> a GP. The GP very appropriately thought, Well, it sounds like infection, I'll send off a stool culture, and that came back as negative. And because her symptoms had gone on for a while, thought, well, i better treat her colitis. So started started on prednisolone. started with 20 milligrams, reduced by 5 milligrams every two days, until after eight days, she was off the steroids. Because of pain, GP also gave cocodamol, uh, two tablets, four times a day. And during that eight, eight days, the diarrhoea improved, but the pain was worse. So she presented to the MAU with left-sided abdominal pain. At this stage, her bowels are open two to four times a day, small amount of blood and mucus, but not that frequent. And those were the parameters when she came in. Site temperature, 37.5, not tachycardic, heart rate of 74. CRP was raised at 2.51, album was normal, potassium was 4, hemoglobin was normal, white count very slightly elevated, and platelets slightly elevated. Now, we haven't got um, any voting buttons, but to we'll use a show of hands, an old fashioned technique. Um, three, I'm going to give you three options. Has she got mild to moderate disease? Would you happily send her home with treatment? Has she got severe colitis? Would you admit her? Or has she got something else going on? So if you could raise your hands, who thinks this lady's got mild to moderate disease and can be treated maybe with oral steroids and sent home, raise your hands. Okay, just a couple. Has she got severe colitis and needs admission? Maybe one or two was saving themselves for the last. So has she got something else going on? So the majority thinks I'm hiding something from you. This is another diagnosis. The, 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 the clues really in the title of the talk, which is acute severe colitis. And um, so this lady was admitted to hospital. She was treated with IV steroids and clexane. And because of the pain, she, which had been going on despite cocodamol, she was given. Uh, Orimov. On day two, she had a repeat CRP. remember it was over 250 when she first came in. That had come down significantly. Hemoglobin had come down a bit. White count was still normal. They repeated all the tests for infection, uh, and they were negative. Um, On a stool chart, she was opening her bowels just twice every 24 hours. Small amount of blood or mucus. But on day three, her abdominal pain was worse, and the SHA was asked to see her. And the SHO increased the aurogram to two hourly. She'd be having of 40 to 50 mil, uh, mils per day on the first two days, so it was increased even further. So what's going on? Well, the X-ray I showed you before was it was her X-ray. Um, I've already told show you the features. It was reported by radiology saying no evidence of toxic megacolon, uh, but there is uh, severe colitis. It's almost pancolitis, going certainly from ascending colon round to rectum. Uh, there's these mucosal islands, which are a severe feature, and there's this loop of small bowel. So, when the SHO saw her with increasing abdominal pain, the SHA repeated the X-ray. It shows much the same findings, really, uh, only the diameter of the colon's gone up very slightly. It's about six centimetres, six and a half centimetres. But there's still, you know, it's still pancreatitis, still these small bowel loops. Day four, she had another routine X-ray. Um, and this time the colonic diameter is 11 centimetres. So she's been treated with IV steroids, she hasn't got diarrhoea but she's getting pain and she's getting dilatation of her colon. So this is toxic megacolon. And day four after that x-ray she went for a subtotal colectomy. She had extensive ulceration with regenerative mucosal islands, haemorrhage, uh, transmural inflammation which is unusual in colitis suggests that it's imminent perforation with expansion to the subserosal fat. No no perforation, and she probably had a timely colectomy. So this is fulminant ulcerative colitis. And there are quite a few lessons to learn from this case. First of all, being adequate dose treatment. So if you think someone's got acute severe colitis, you treat them with big doses of steroid first off. And you don't taper the treatment too rapidly. So rapid tapers are associated with development of toxic megacolon. Either rapidly withdrawing a 5-ASA, or too rapidly withdrawing the steroids. And most significantly, we often have difficulty with this with patients and with junior doctors, but patients with pain, with colitis, we don't like giving opiates or antidiarrheals diarrheals to because it can precipitate toxic megacolon. and uh, if, they, if they've got pain, we need to find out why they've got the pain and if they've got pain because of severe colitis, they need their colitis treating and not their pain treating. And I think this case also shows the importance of sequential imaging. Once people have got um, fulminant colitis, um, often they don't manifest a high temperature. Um, often their, um, their clinical parameters uh, don't deteriorate until they have a complication like a perforation. And so it's important in patients who do have suspicious findings on a f- abdominal film uh, to repeat the <coughs> abdominal X-rays. But this second half of the talk now, I'm going to move on to the treatment of acute severe colitis. And really, it's divided into two main parts, medical and surgical. And very importantly, is the transition of these patients between medical and surgical treatment. So as I've alluded to, the first line treatment is still corticosteroids. 100 milligrams QDS, or some places do use methylprednisolone. And general, True Love and Wit use a five-day regime. If you're going to start somewhere on venous steroids, for acute severe colitis, you're not going to taper treatment until after five days. But it's become quite clear that therapy beyond seven to ten days has no benefit. And those that do respond, we taper the steroids over about six weeks from prednisone of 40 milligrams uh, down to zero. And systematic reviews are quite consistent over the last 30 years, showing that about two-thirds of patients with acute severe colitis will respond to corticosteroids. And that hasn't changed. Just a quick slide on the other conventional treatments we have for acute severe colitis. Uh, potassium is a major uh, issue. Uh, lowering potassium in a patient with fulminant colitis is a bad sign and one of the factors which does predict development of toxic megakelmon. Uh, so potassium replacement, sometimes magnesium replacement. VTE prophylaxis absolutely paramount because one of the major complications these patients get are clotting problems. Nutritional support. And there's no advantage of intravenous nutrition over oral nutrition. In fact, there's less complications with oral nutrition. So we get the dieticians involved in all these patients to ensure their intake's adequate. They're not going to feel like eating big meals, but we always give them nutritional supplements which they can sip through the day to maintain their calorie count. Particularly if they're going to end up with surgery, those are the patients who are going to have least complications. We generally withdraw all anticholinergics, non-steroidals and opioids. Um, Topical therapy is only really uh, indicated in patients with limited colitis. And we rarely give antibiotics unless we suspect a complication or we think this is uh, an infection. And we try and maintain their hemoglobin between 8 and 10. So, just a bit of data now, uh, again on mortality. So, this is looking at relative uh, survival, so uh, age and sex match survival compared to a a peer group. And this is data from Oxford uh, over a period of time. And it showed that patients with the blue line who have got, have elective colectomy have a much better outcome than patients who need emergency colectomy. Now people didn't really believe this data when it first came out so the BSG did a, an audit across all of England in 1998-2000 <coughs> and they showed really exactly the same findings. The patients with an elective colectomy do very well but if you present with acute severe colitis and either have medical treatment or surgical treatment your mortality is significantly affected. One of the other features is that mortality and morbidity in this group of patients is proportional to the number of days you have in hospital prior to your surgery. So if you delay surgery, the outcomes become worse and worse. And that's data which is quite clear on a number of studies. The Scandinavians are very good at keeping registries. and a lot of good data on colitis patients from, from Scandinavia, and they looked at this in a kind of different subgroups and they show, not surprisingly, that the patients dying from acute severe colitis are the elderly patients I call elderly over 60 over fifty, so the people at risk of dying are are elderly over 60 and about 25% of the colitis patients um, are in this group in this study. The other impact on uh, survival, mortality, is the experience of the team looking after you so in low-volume centers where colectomy is rarely performed mortality is high and as the experience of the center looking after you improves by the surrogate marker being the number of colectomies performed for acute severe colitis the mortality reduces so in specialist centers mortality can be very low. One of the difficulties though is the timing of the colectomy um, in these patients and it's very d- uh, difficult particularly for gastroenterologists so it's seen as a failure for us if our patients go to the surgeon and have a colectomy I think that's the wrong way to look at it though but certainly all patients don't need a colectomy too soon and we're putting patients through unnecessary colectomy and stoma and most patients don't want to have a colectomy and a stoma if they can avoid it. Too late though and we've got significant increase in morbidity and mortality in this group. and We've got to try and get a balance between the two. So there's a number of issues we need to discuss with patients and we need to discuss these things early (coughs) in the course. What we really need are ways to predict who will fail the standard first-line treatment with steroids. We need to think about whether we have salvage treatments we can give them and what the long-term outcomes (coughs) from those salvage treatments are. Um, We need to be able to assess response to the salvage therapy. Has it worked? Are we delaying colectomy too long? And I'll just touch on briefly whether there's a role for second-line salvage therapy. And there's some data on all these things. So we have a few predictors of which patients um, are going to not respond uh, to IV steroids and require a colectomy. So at at presentation, a low-album is a bad sign, very high CRP is bad. There is an acute short illness. It's a bad predictor. And if they've already been treated with steroids, it's again a poor predictor. Uh, Day 1, there's another few factors. We tend to use day 3. So Simon Travis did a lot of this work on stool frequency and CRP. And it's a very useful predictor. If the stool frequency is still high and the CRP is greater than 45 on day 3, so after 48 hours of treatment with IV steroids, a lot of those patients will end up with subsequent colectomy at least within the year. Maybe not in that admission, but within the year. And at any time, if there are mucosal islands, uh, dilated colon, um, or severe deep ulceration at the sigmoidoscopy, like in this patient whose X-ray I showed you before, uh, a lot of those patients will require colectomy. So just a brief note on salvage therapies. I'll go through this quite quickly because. I think you just need to be aware of what we do, but there's quite good data from 1994, the first seminal paper in this, showing that cyclosporin in patients who are refractory to treatment with intravenous steroids will improve. So it's small numbers, but the trial was stopped early because it was so dramatic the difference: 80% improved with cyclosporin, non improved with placebo. Subsequent studies show a response rate of 70 to And subsequently, we found that actually lower doses of cyclosporine, two milligram per kilogram dose, which is associated with less complications and side effects, is just as effective. One of the difficulties, though, is that the time to response is about four days. Some would say it takes even longer. So assessing response is really very difficult. Um, There's some evidence that patients who can't have intravenous steroids due to psychosis or poorly controlled diabetes or uh, severe osteoporosis Treating them with cyclosporine monotherapy is as effective as IV steroids. So in selected patients, we don't treat them with steroids, but with cyclosporin. Largely, though, it's a bridge to thiopurine treatment. So data from the late 1990s, where actually uh, gastroenterologists, when they first started using cyclosporin, the mortality rate went up because of complications from cyclosporin and we weren't used to using uh, these immunosuppressant drugs. But it's quite clear that we don't keep people on cyclosporin long-term, but we use it as a bridge to azathioprine on the mofetil. And still, the long-term data, even though if patients are bridged to a thiopurine, uh, is that a significant proportion will come to colectomy, if presented with acute severe colitis. Tacrolimus, probably similar outcomes to cyclosporin. We tend to use uh, cyclosporin more than tacrolimus, but some centres use tacrolimus. We're perhaps more used to using infliximab because of uh, our experience in Crohn's disease. And, interestingly, a single (coughs) dose of uh, infliximab will reduce the need for colectomy at three months by a significant proportion. Subgroup analysis on these patients seems to suggest that it's more the patients with moderate disease than severe fulminant colitis that benefit from uh, infliximab. And certainly where it has been used more extensively in ulcerative colitis is in moderate uh, severe patients in an outpatient setting who are refractory to steroids. And then it seems to work quite well. There have been some head-to-head comparisons of uh, cyclosporin and uh, infliximab and they seem to be equivalent with a similar rate uh, uh, of, of complications and side effects and similar outcomes. So need for colectomy in about 20% of patients at three months. <coughs> most gastroenterologists tend to be more happy using infliximab because it's easier but I think the data really isn't there for infl- and I think either um, can be used. So just on a comparison cyclosporine is obviously much cheaper. With cyclosporin, third-line rescue therapy will be possible um, because there's a short li- half-life of cyclosporine. So if you use cyclosporin first and they fail you can then use infliximab. If you use infliximab first because of the long half-life, you're committing that patient to triple immune, uh, suppression and much higher risk of complications. So most people wouldn't use cyclosporin after infliximab failure. Infliximab though is easy; it's easy to use. We think it's got less side effects, but that's not evidence-based. And it's perhaps more uh, has a role in patients who have previously failed a, thi- a thiopurine. So patients with cyclosporin, uh, it's a bridge to thiopurine. If they've already had azathioprine and mercaptopurine and been intolerant and we shouldn't really be using cyclosporin, and those patients are probably better off having infliximab. And as I've already alluded to, those with uh, less severe disease uh, probably will benefit more from infliximab. So, as just the European Crohn's colitis statement uh, regarding the use of the two, um, it suggests that uh, salvage therapy is sensible, either use cyclosporin or infliximab, uh, but it has uh, come against using third-line treatment because of a much higher complication risk. So surgery, it's all about timing. It's all about when we refer our patients to the surgeons. And it needs a quite close interaction between the patient, the physician um, and the surgeon. Daily review, daily discussion, involvement of the surgeons at an early time, but giving the chance for the first-line treatment and the salvage treatments to work. So as I've alluded to, we don't want to uh, spin the therapy out over uh, longer than seven days. Ideally, obviously, we want our patients to respond earlier, but the sooner we have a failure to steroids, we start with the second-line salvage treatment, and the sooner we have failure of the salvage treatments, the better the outcome for the patient who subsequently comes to surgery. It's important to get a stoma therapist involved at a very early stage to talk to the patient, reassure them about how good stoma therapy is nowadays, because that's most patients' fear about surgery, is the fear of having a stoma. The treatment is a subtotal colectomy and ileostomy in the first setting um, and it's better if it's performed laparoscopically and they have less long-term uh, side effects from adhesions um, the pelvic dissection and subsequent ileal pouch anastomosis is much better if there's a laparoscopic colectomy, but it takes longer so in the severely sick patients with fulminant colitis who have a low albumin been on steroids for days, poor nutrition, they probably should have an open colectomy but if they're not quite so severe and you've got a good surgeon at laparoscopic techniques, then if it's laparoscopic-assisted, their outcome tends to be better. It's important, to, for, particularly for the younger patients, under the age of 55, 60, to be aware that there is continuity possible in the future with uh, restorative um, surgery, so with an iloanal uh, ileo- pouch and anastomosis. In, in our lady, who's 37, uh, she had two children. One of the issues is if you're going to have a subsequent family uh, pelvic surgery is associated with significant reduced fertility so she's opted not to have a pouch surgeon in the first instance but to contemplate whether she wants to have more kids and then she can come back at a later stage and have, uh, have, a, have, a, have, have um, a a pouch operation and that's really very critical. A lot of the patients we have this discussion with are young women and it's really critical that they understand that uh, what, what, what the options are in the future. And again, can't overestimate the importance of, of good communication uh, with the patient from the start of the admission really. So, very briefly, perforation uh, complications. Uh, perforations are a disaster. So, if our patients perforate, there's a very high mortality, up to fifty percent. Some series would suggest up to seventy percent. So, unrecognized perforation in patients on steroids often it, it isn't recognised, uh, is, is really a disaster. Massive haemorrhage hemorrhage is rare, it doesn't stop us from using clexane, we should use clexane in all these patients, uh, but it is often an indication for uh, surgery if it occurs, but I can only think of one patient ever that I've had to send for colectomy because of haemorrhage. VTE venous thromboembolism, including cerebral sinus thrombosis and more unusual are quite common in these patients if they're not treated with Clexane. So Clexane is absolutely (coughs) paramount. If you can do one thing for these patients on the front door it's start them on Clexane. The later issues become the septic complications from immunosuppression um, and and that's one of the downsides to medical treatment I'm afraid. So my last slide now, just, just a summary of hopefully things I've already said, but acute severe colitis Patients need to be hospitalised and there needs to be joint care from the start of the admission between a gastroenterologist and a colorectal surgeon because of the the, the, uh, patients with increased mortality who fail first-line therapy. First-line therapy is still intravenous steroids, hasn't changed for over 50 years. It's important to rule out clonic superinfection with C. diff and to have a high index of suspicion for CMV. To identify patients by day three, who have failed steroids, are not improving, and who will require a colectomy unless they have a salvage uh, therapy. Salvage therapy, second line, we would use cyclospirin or infliximab, and I've gone through the advantages of each. Third line therapy, unless the patient really refuses to have a colectomy, we would not do. So the the evidence, I haven't gone into it in great detail today, but the evidence for third line medical therapy is pretty poor, and the complication rates uh, are very high. There's still a role for surgery, and it's all about communication from the start of the hospital admission uh, to discharge of colectomy. So early involvement of the surgeon, early discussion with the patients, uh, and, and hopefully we get a good outcome. Thank you.